Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back, all you crimeaholics. It's your girl, Holly, and I am back today with another episode for you. As you can tell from the title of this episode, not only is this episode about an unsolved murder, but it's also an MMIW case. For those that are new to the podcast and may not be aware, MMIW stands for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. When our podcast started in 2020, we dedicated the month of August to the MMIW to highlight the ongoing issues that not only Indigenous women, but Indigenous people in general face. This episode is going to really bring back the focus to that topic and hopefully be eye-opening for everyone who listens or who may not be aware of the alarming statistics that surround Indigenous women and girls. It has been a while since I myself have covered an MMIW case, and to be honest with you guys, these cases are really hard to cover. The lack of media coverage and information that is available on the majority of these cases is very sad. They just don't seem to get the coverage that they so desperately need and deserve. And so when I come across a case that has enough information to give, I try and make it a priority to cover it. I also want to add that I try my very best when researching and recording these cases to pronounce things correctly and to use the right terminology, as I would never want to offend anyone. So please give me grace if something is mispronounced or said wrong. I am obviously still learning and trying my very best. However, some people still tend to forget that we all are human and we all make mistakes despite trying to do things perfectly. So today's case comes out of Canada and is on the unsolved murder of a 15-year-old girl named Tina Fontaine. Before we dive into the full-blown details on Tina, I do want to give some statistics and backstory a little bit because it does pertain to this case as a whole. Now, as I mentioned, this case is out of Canada, and according to a study I found from the University of Buffalo, Indigenous women make up approximately 4% of Canadian population. But what is disturbing is that Indigenous women represent 16% of the women who are murdered in Canada. Let that sink in. 4% of the entire Canadian population is Indigenous women, but they make up 16% of the women that were murdered in Canada. This is a major issue, obviously, and the reason why we have these MMIW movements. 
The next thing I want to mention and briefly tell you guys about is the Canadian residential school system. And I think this topic has been talked about a little bit more recently with the discovery of over 600 unmarked graves at the site of a former residential school for Indigenous children. However, I personally didn't really know the full depth of these residential schools until researching this case. So I find that it's important that I read a little bit of the information that I found on the Indigenous Foundations website for you guys. I will also link this in the description of this episode so that you guys can read up on it further if you wish to do so. Again, this does pertain to the case and is very important, so bear with me. Okay, so the term residential schools refers to an extensive school system set up by the Canadian government, and it was administered by churches that had the nominal objective of educating Indigenous children, but also the more damaging and equally explicit objectives of indoctrinating them into Euro-Canadian ways of living and assimilating them into mainstream Canadian society. These school systems started way back in the 1880s, and they continued until 1998 when the final residential school was closed. This system forcibly separated children from their families for extended periods of time, and they forbade them to acknowledge their indigenous heritage and culture, and they weren't allowed to speak their own language. They were forced to speak English. These children, while in the hands of the Canadian government, were abused physically, sexually, emotionally, and psychologically. Not only that, these schools didn't even provide proper education and instead focused mainly on prayer and manual labor in agriculture, woodworking, and domestic work like laundry and sewing. These school systems undermined Aboriginal cultures across Canada and disrupted families for generations, severing the ties through which Indigenous culture is taught and sustained. Because these children were removed from their families, and many of them were removed at a very young age, many of them grew up without experiencing a nurturing family life. Many of these children never felt real love, and that then bleeds on into how they connect and raise their own children. They lacked the knowledge and skills to raise their own family, creating this horrific cycle of abuse and oftentimes addiction. The effects of the residential schools continue to have a significant impact on indigenous communities even still today which in this case, as you will see, it affected this family as well. And Tina specifically never really had a chance at a good life due to the ongoing cycle that she was caught up in. Right off the bat in her life, things were rough. Tina was repeatedly failed by the system. Medium.com quoted Tina's grand-aunt Thelma saying that Tina was, quote, doomed from the beginning. On January 1st, 1999, Tina Michelle Fontaine was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Her mother, Valentina Duck, was just 17 years old when she and a man by the name of Eugene Fontaine, who was a 28-year-old man, welcomed Tina 
and Tina was actually their second child. Valentina was part of the Bloodvein First Nation, and Eugene was part of the Sag King First Nation. Now, Valentina, at the time that Tina was born, was in the care of the Canadian government herself. It was said that she would run away from home and that she was abusing drugs from a very early age. And it was allegedly known by caseworkers that Valentina was actually being sexually exploited throughout her young life while in these care homes that she was supposed to be getting taken care of in. Valentina clearly had her own rough upbringing. As I said, Tina was Valentina and Eugene's second child, and their first child was born when Valentina was just 14 years old. And unfortunately, right off the bat, this baby was taken away from them because both Valentina and Eugene struggled with addiction. So they lost their child as a result of this ongoing issue. And here is where the generational cycle comes into play. Both Eugene and Valentina's parents had been part of those residential schools, and Eugene himself had also been a survivor of the schools. And like I said, those that were in these types of schools lacked the love and nurture that is so vital in our younger years. Not only that, but they weren't given any proper education. Most of them were subjected to horrific abuse, and when they finally aged out of the schools or were thrown out, they had no real skills to help them navigate in the world. So often they would find themselves doing whatever they could to make ends meet, whether that be sex work, bad jobs, and many other things. These people often ended up turning to drugs and alcohol to cope with their lives, to cope with the awful things that they had endured. And then this ends up with neglect of their children. They don't know how to properly raise and love them, and the cycle just goes on and on. And that is literally what has happened with this case. It started with her grandparents and trickled down to Tina and her siblings. Despite Valentina and Eugene having this upbringing and their first child being taken away from them, they tried to break this cycle. They tried to do what they could to set their lives straight and get back on track. Before Tina was born, they both got clean and were wanting to find a way to get their first child back. Things seemed to be finally looking up for the family when Tina was born. Unfortunately, though, that didn't last long, and both Valentina and Eugene slid back into addiction. Now, it is said that around 2002, Valentina and Eugene finally decided to call it quits on their relationship. Eugene and Valentina were deep in addiction and had their children repeatedly taken away from them. But after the split with Valentina, according to CBC.ca, Eugene had also gotten himself clean again and had attended addiction treatments and parenting classes to get his children back. The relationship between Valentina and her children completely stopped at this point, and from all things that I could find, she was completely absent during most of Tina's younger years. I do, however, know that she ended up getting together with another man, and in total, she had seven children. 
From what I could find, it also seems like during this time, Valentina was still working in sex work, and she was struggling with addiction, and overall, her life was just in shambles. Eugene, on the other hand, seemed to be trying to do his very best for his children, and from everything I've seen, Tina was very close with her father. In 2004, when Tina was just four or five years old, Eugene was diagnosed with cancer. It seems like after this diagnosis, Eugene kind of spiraled and found himself struggling once more with addiction. And because of that, Tina and her sister were taken away from Eugene. Thankfully, though, the girls weren't put into a foster home with strangers. They were actually taken in by their great-aunt Thelma and great-uncle Joseph. This was honestly probably the first time that the girls had a really good, stable home. They lived with Thelma and Joseph for 10 years in a place called Powerview Pine Falls, which is about an hour and 25 minutes northeast of Winnipeg. But life was just tough for Tina. She struggled a lot in school. It just didn't come easy for her. She seemed to be falling behind. The teachers noted in report cards and during conferences that Tina wasn't showing any signs of improvement whatsoever, and her great-aunt was really good about trying to do whatever she could to help Tina. And during trying to figure out what was going on, it was brought up that Tina could potentially be suffering from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder which if you're not familiar with what that is, it is a condition that can occur in a person who was exposed to alcohol while in utero. This can cause not only physical problems, but problems with behaviors, but also problems with learning. When this was brought to Thelma's attention, she tried her hardest to get testing done for Tina. She tried to get her into services that could potentially help her, but she just kept getting turned away. Those services that are supposed to be available for children who are within the foster care system weren't readily available to them, and I don't know why. This was still considered a foster care situation, even though Tina was living with her family. She shouldn't have been denied the services and care that she needed, and she should have been able to easily get the help that she needed. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of Tina slipping through the cracks. Despite not doing strong in school, Tina still went every day. She tried the very best that she could, and overall, she was a very good girl. Sadly, though, in 2011, when she was just 12 years old, things took a shift for the worse. Tina's father, Eugene, was very sick, and he was still struggling with his cancer. He wasn't getting better, and tragically, he died. But it wasn't the cancer that killed Eugene. Instead, he had gotten into some sort of argument with two men, and they ended up beating him to death. And I want to stop for a second and briefly touch on Eugene's murder, because the two men who were responsible for ending his life were only charged with manslaughter, and they were each sentenced to nine years in prison. So that means that they've already served their time and been released from prison. 
What a complete injustice that was. Not only did these men beat him to death, but I saw in one article that it said they stomped his head, drug him into a shed, and tied him to a chair where he died from his head injuries. Yet these two men still got manslaughter. So even though Tina was living away from her father, she still remained in contact with him. She was very close with him and loved him so much. So naturally, this was extremely hard for Tina to process. She was traumatized by the details of his murder. And being a 12-year-old girl who had faced so much already in her life, Tina struggled immensely. To honor her father, she got a tattoo of angel wings on her back with his name, date of birth, and date of death. And yes, she did this immediately after he died, so she got this tattoo at just 12 years old. The death of her father was the start of Tina really going downhill and fast. This completely devastated her, and she was in this deep, dark depression. She ultimately gave up trying, in a sense. She stopped caring about school. She quit trying in class. She didn't do her work. She became a very angry and violent little girl. According to cbc.ca, her great aunt said that she tried to get counseling for Tina from the various child and family services agencies, and she was turned away. This is something that makes me so extremely emotional. This child was dealt some of the worst cards she could have been given. She had this family member who was advocating for her, who was trying her best to get her the help by asking for help from the child services that was meant to help her. And these are services that she should have been easily given. These services should have been readily available at any time of day that she needed them. Child services was supposed to be helping this child, and she was turned away. It was during this time that Tina began experimenting with drugs and alcohol. She also started to run with the wrong crowd of people. Tina began running away from home and would be picked up by random men who were much older than she was. Like her mother, she was also sexually exploited, and it's not fully known what exactly happened when these men would pick her up and take her away for a few days, but it was nothing good. We know that. Through all of this, her aunt tried to be there for her. She tried to get her the help repeatedly, and unfortunately, Tina was just in such a dark place. She was grieving her father. She was likely also feeling the effects of not having her mother around, and there was just so much pain and grief in her life. Now, because she was still a minor and she was still within the system, her family once more reached out to CFS and asked for help again. And to my knowledge, CFS did acknowledge that she was a child that was struggling. She was in need of help. They were aware of the drug and the alcohol abuse, and they also were aware that she was talking to and running off with older men. It was said that the RCMP were also notified of these men, and both CFS and the RCMP didn't seem to really do anything. 
which is scary because she was obviously being groomed by these older men. She was being sexually exploited and she was doing drugs. Something needed to be done to save this child. And no matter what they did or where they turned, it seemed like services weren't available or they were denied or there was some XYZ reason as to why she could never benefit from them. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. From the time that Tina Fontaine was 12 years old until she was 15 years old, Tina struggled with grief, depression, and addiction. Sometime between the ages of 14 and 15, Tina started expressing her desire to reconnect with her mother, Valentina, who was still living in Winnipeg at that time. And I can see her reasoning for wanting to have her mom be a part of her life. From my understanding, she hadn't seen her mother really since before she could remember. It seemed like she was grasping for some sort of parental relationship, and that's understandable in my opinion. Those teenage years are monumental, and to have lost her father in such a tragic way, I could see why she wanted to then cling to her mother. But everyone in her family all knew that her mother was still not living a great lifestyle. Instead of completely denying Tina to go visit her mother, her great-aunt Thelma made a call to CFS asking them if it was okay for Tina to go. And despite everyone knowing that Tina was known to still be working in the sex trade and that she was still struggling with addiction, the caseworker told Thelma to go ahead and let Tina visit her mom in Winnipeg. So in January 2014, Tina traveled to Winnipeg to visit her mother for the first time in years. By all accounts, this visit went well, and Tina wanted to go back and visit her mother again. So on July 1st, 2014, Tina's Aunt Thelma gave Tina $60 and a long-distance phone card. She told Tina that if for any reason she needs to call her or if there's any reason that she needs to come home, she could use that phone card and they will immediately come and pick her up. Thelma gave her niece one last hug before she sent her off to Winnipeg, not realizing that this would be the last time that she would ever see her alive again. So leading up to Tina leaving for Winnipeg, she did have a boyfriend, and when she went there, she did keep in contact with him, and he became extremely alarmed by the things that Tina was telling him about what she was doing and what her mom was doing. He was so concerned that he actually called up her Aunt Thelma and Uncle Joseph to tell them that Tina told him that she and her mother were using crack cocaine together. According to what Tina told him, this wasn't a one-time experimental thing either. This was a regular thing that she and her mother were doing together. 
It was also reported that Tina herself began working in sex work while in Winnipeg, and it's unknown if this was something that she was forced to do by her mom or someone else, or if this was something that she willingly did herself. Now, Tina's boyfriend was obviously very upset by all of this, and he begged her to come home. When anyone else in the family spoke to Tina, they also begged her to come home, but she wasn't having it. She didn't have any desire to return back to her regular life, and so she stayed. We really don't know what the full details are that went on. We know that after her family begged her to come back and her not wanting to come back, over the weeks leading up to her death, Tina had been reported missing by her family multiple times. But they weren't the only ones reporting her missing. Because Tina was still under the care of the government, because she was technically in a foster situation, they also were reporting her missing when she couldn't be reached. For weeks, Tina was bouncing around to different shelters, and then she would go back to her mom's house, and then she would end up at random hotels and so on. She was never in one place for long, and there were days where nobody knew where she was, what she was doing, and then she would randomly resurface. When she would resurface, it was usually at a women's shelter or a homeless shelter of some kind, and every time she had lost at least a few pounds. On top of the weight loss, she was usually covered in bruises and just overall was not in a good physical state. She would occasionally reach out to her sister on her phone, and she would send her pictures of her bruised and battered body. Now, Tina had told her sister that the bruises were from her mother's new boyfriend. She also showed off pictures of her doing drugs to her sister, and it was very apparent to her family back home that this was not a good situation and that Tina needed to be helped. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, between July 17th and July 18th, Tina was picked up by Child and Family Services in Winnipeg. It was stated that they had put her into a downtown hotel because there was no emergency placement or emergency home available to put Tina into. Now, there are a few different stories out there about what exactly happened on the 17th and the 18th, and one of those was that Tina was picked up because she was extremely intoxicated. The other story was that a call had come into the Winnipeg Police Service stating that a young girl, who was Tina, had been screaming for help and she was being dragged by her arm down the street by an older man. And here is where CFS failed Tina again. There was no planning done on how they were going to help this child. It was said that she was extremely intoxicated and that she had told them that she had been doing drugs. They did no assessment on her to determine what her situation was, nor did any kind of support take place at this time. She was just dropped off at a hotel in downtown Winnipeg to sober up And again, let that sink in. This is a child needing to sober up. She's 15 years old, left alone in a hotel to come down from whatever drugs she had taken, if she had taken any like she claimed, and to sober up from being extremely intoxicated. 
From the sounds of it, it sounds like nobody stayed there to ensure her safety. Nobody stayed to make sure that she actually stayed in this hotel and didn't wander off back to the streets to continue her behavior. Nothing more was done other than sticking her in this hotel room and telling her that she could leave the following morning after she sobered up. This literally blows my mind. This is a child who is supposed to be in the care of CFS and nada was done to help beyond giving her a room to sleep in. Between the 23rd and the 29th of July, Tina had stayed in a youth temporary shelter, but her bed was eventually given away to another youth when she missed her curfew for the second time. She was reported missing once more on July 31st, 2014 by the Winnipeg Police Service. She was found again on August 8th when the Winnipeg police pulled over a vehicle for a traffic stop. Apparently, she was in the car of an older man, and at first, from what I saw, Tina wouldn't tell the police who she was. She kept dodging their questions, but ultimately, they figured it out, found out that she was missing, and instead of doing anything, they let her go. A few hours later, Tina would be found again, and this time she was found unconscious in an alleyway near the University of Winnipeg. This alleyway was known to be an area where sexual exploitation would occur. According to theglobeandmail.com, Tina was found partially unclothed. The paramedics ended up taking Tina to the hospital. While there, Tina had told the ER doctor that she had been drinking alcohol, smoking weed, and taking gabapentin. And after testing her, they found that she also had methamphetamine and cocaine in her system. At this point, a caseworker for CFS was contacted. After all of the testing was done, and I guess maybe she sobered up, she was released from the hospital and was taken by the caseworker to get some food and to go to yet another hotel. But while Tina ate her fast food, she began opening up to the CFS worker and started to tell her that she had been hanging out with this man named Sebastian. She told the CFS worker that this man was a 50-year-old man and that he was known to use meth on the regular. And apparently this guy was supposed to be helping her buy a bike. The things and the stories that Tina was telling the social worker is deeply disturbing. The things that she was doing and the things that she was exposed to, no 15-year-old girl, or honestly nobody ever, should have to be exposed to those kinds of things. According to one article I read, the CFS worker did offer to get Tina a bike so long as she stayed in a CFS placement, but that would never happen. The caseworker from the hospital took Tina to her hotel room and left her there. But again, she didn't stay, nor did she come back to that hotel. Once more, she was reported missing. From my understanding, not a lot was done after she was reported missing this time. The police and CFS workers were so used to her going off the radar and then randomly popping back up that they once more didn't think much of it in the first several days. This entire situation is so frustrating because things could have been done to help Tina. 
She should have never just been released at random hotels hoping that she would stay. There's so many interventions and things that could have been done, and yet they weren't. And for a week, the authorities and CFS workers did nothing to search for Tina. They sent out a bolo and just assumed that she would pop back up again, but she never did. After a week went by, they finally started taking her case a bit more seriously, and they began by calling her family back home to see if anyone had seen or heard from her, which obviously they hadn't. They also contacted her mother, and she also said that she hadn't seen or talked to Tina. Now, there isn't a ton of information on whether they did a physical ground search for Tina. At this point, I'm going to guess that they didn't because in their minds, she's just missing. She's likely caught up doing something that she shouldn't be doing. And on top of that, they likely wouldn't even know where to begin with a physical search like that. On July 17th, the police were doing a search of the Red River in connection to a missing man that wasn't even related to this case at all. And there was a father and son duo that had been out fishing the river that day, and they were aware that the police were around searching for someone. While they were fishing, the two spotted something floating in the river, so they decided to call it in and alert the authorities. The police were assuming that they found the man that they had been looking for, but instead they found Tina Fontaine's lifeless body wrapped in plastic, weighed down with rocks, and then wrapped in a Costco duvet. Obviously, given that she was wrapped up multiple times and someone had attempted to weigh her down with rocks, this was obviously a murder case. Tina's body was severely decomposed, and she was unrecognizable. During the autopsy, they found no broken bones, no real sign or indications on how Tina died. She didn't have any bullet wounds. She didn't have any stab wounds. And they couldn't figure out how she died. And one of the main reasons why they couldn't figure that out, not only for just the physical things like that, but her body was so badly decomposed from being in the water for days. It was believed that Tina had died sometime around August 10th, and she wasn't discovered until August 17th. Also because of this, any DNA or fingerprints that had potentially been left on her body or the stuff that she had been wrapped in had all been washed away. Also, the only way that they were able to identify this body as being Tina's so quickly was because despite the decomposition, her large memorial tattoo on her back was still visible. Now, Tina had been missing for a significant amount of time before she was found, and the police really had nothing to go off of. They had no idea where she went after being dropped off at that hotel on the night of the 9th. They didn't know who she was really hanging out with or where to find this Sebastian guy that she told the CFS worker about. They had no indications on where this murder took place or even how it happened. There's no saying how far downriver Tina's body managed to float. There was just so many unanswered questions. So they released a public statement asking for assistance in this case, and they asked if anyone knew Tina or had seen her to please come forward and call it in. And immediately they were flooded with tips. With all of these tips coming in, the police were working double time, trying to figure out which leads to follow. 
There were a lot of rumors and stories coming in about people hearing some men talking about killing Tina, but those stories and rumors were ruled out. While they were following the leads that came into the tip line, they also were doing interviews with those closest to Tina, one of which was her boyfriend from back home. He told authorities that he had come to visit Tina a few times in Winnipeg, and that while visiting in the middle of July, he met a guy on a bike whose name was Sebastian. He said that after he went back home, he knew that Tina was still meeting up with Sebastian and hanging out with him when he wasn't in town. Tina's boyfriend also told the authorities about this house that Sebastian had apparently shown them or taken them to, and from the sounds of it, it sounds like a place where people would just go to to do drugs and then stay for a bit. Now, with all of this information in hand, the authorities were able to kind of piece together some potential people that they thought this Sebastian person could be and where this house was. The authorities learned that Tina had been at this house on August 6th, which was right before she was found unconscious in that alleyway. They were able to find a few people who had often been at this house and had been there in the days leading up to all of this. And these people also talked about a man named Sebastian that Tina was with daily. These people also told authorities that it was on the 6th that Tina and Sebastian had gotten into an argument over Sebastian selling a bike that was Tina's for drug money. Now, if you remember, Tina had told the CFS worker about Sebastian and about a bike. So authorities felt like this was a really strong lead considering the close stories. After this argument, Tina had apparently left this house and called 911 on Sebastian. She was mad about this bike situation, so she called the cops to tell them that Sebastian had stolen a truck earlier in the day. She had told them where he was and where to find this truck. And the dispatcher told her to just call the police department directly and not to use the 911 emergency line for this information. Now, whether she did that or not, I'm not really sure, but this call corroborates the story further that Tina and Sebastian had this fight. Police knew that they had to figure out who the Sebastian guy was, and they were able to figure out that Sebastian wasn't actually this guy's name at all. They learned that his real name was Raymond Cormier, and he was not a good individual. This man was known for doing meth, he stole from people on the regular, and he was a 51-year-old man and had a long rap sheet. Not to mention, why in the hell is a 51-year-old man hanging around a 15-year-old girl to begin with? He clearly is bad news. And though they knew who he was, they had a really hard time tracking him down once they knew that he was this Sebastian individual that Tina had been with. The truck that he allegedly stole was still missing, and so they did whatever they could to locate him or the truck. They also pulled surveillance footage from the hotels that Tina had been taken to to see if maybe the truck was spotted somewhere on those cameras, picking Tina up or dropping her off somewhere on the night of August 8th. 
They found a truck matching this description pulling up to the hotel that Tina was dropped off at on that night. In the footage, you can see the truck pull up and park, and he remains parked there for 30 or so minutes. The driver never got out of the truck, and in the video, you can see some movement within the truck. It appeared that whoever was inside the truck seemed to be kind of looking around, trying to find something, and at one point, apparently, it appears that maybe a light or a flashlight gets turned on inside the truck, again, maybe trying to search for something. And then all of a sudden, there was movement on the passenger side of the vehicle. And then all of a sudden, the truck speeds off. And I'm not just talking, just driving away fast. This truck was pedal to the metal, flying over a curb, literally flying over a curb, driving erratically, and zooms off out of camera sight. Unfortunately, this all took place at night, and of course, the video quality isn't the greatest, so you can't tell if this was Raymond, you can't tell who, if anyone gets in the car, but it's kind of assumed that this was Tina getting into the truck with Raymond behind the wheel. It took an entire month for the authorities to finally track down this stolen truck, Of course, once they found it, they brought the truck in to do a forensic sweep of it to see if they could find any evidence that Tina had been inside or if an altercation had taken place there. They searched every square inch of this truck, hoping that they would find something so that they could charge Raymond with anything. At this point, they really had nothing to go off of, and they were really hopeful that this truck would bring them closer to answers, but they found absolutely nothing, and what a letdown that was. Not to mention Raymond was still nowhere to be found, but that would quickly change when they received a tip on his whereabouts. And that tip actually came from an inmate in the jail. Now, he came forward and told authorities a lot of things about Raymond and Tina. He said that Raymond and Tina had been together a lot, and he had witnessed a lot of things between the two of them. He also said that Raymond had this weird obsession and attraction to Tina. He was, however, able to give the authorities an address of a place he was known to stay at, and sure enough, the cops arrived and he was there. But instead of being cooperative and talking to police, he booked it and ran. They were able to catch him, and he was brought in for questioning, and he did admit that he knew Tina. He admitted that the two of them had gotten into an argument. He admitted to doing drugs with her, but he denied hurting her or having anything to do with her death. Raymond also told the authorities that it's a possibility that a biker gang had killed Tina because she owed them $250 for drugs. And I'm not sure whether this is something that they really looked into or not, or if they just kind of thought it wasn't very plausible given the fact that a $250 drug debt isn't much money to kill someone over. There really isn't a whole lot of information out there. I'm not sure if Raymond just spewed that out to try and get the cops off of him or if this is a real legit thing. But because they didn't have any real evidence on Raymond being involved, they did have to release him. However, they were pretty certain that Raymond was their guy, and with no other leads, they tried to zero in on him further. They decided that they were going to try and do a sting operation on him. 
Now, the detail surrounding this sting is pretty minimal, and I'm not really sure, but somehow they were able to get some recording equipment inside of his apartment that he was staying at. I'm not sure if this was done by a friend, if they roped someone into doing this as like a plea deal or what, but they were able to obtain audio recording of Raymond talking to a woman. And though the audio is a little hard to hear, it does sound like he makes some sort of confession about Tina. I have a couple sentences to read off for you guys. The first one he said was something to the tune of, quote, it was right on the shore, so I threw her in, end quote. The woman in the audio questioned him, like, what do you mean? And he replied with, quote, I did Tina, end quote. And for the authorities, this was enough. They thought that these two sentences was going to seal the deal on the case. They went and arrested Raymond and tried to use this audio against him so that he would further confess and admit to what they thought he had done. And this did not go how they thought it would. Raymond became so irate with the investigators, he started yelling and screaming at them, saying he didn't hurt that little girl. He also started telling them that they were at fault for her murder because they didn't do their jobs, and CFS didn't do their jobs, and pretty much he was telling them that they are the reason that she's dead and that they failed her. Despite not getting a confession, they still felt like this audio that they did have was going to be enough, and so they officially charged Raymond with Tina's murder. After being arrested and charged with 15-year-old Tina Fontaine's murder, Raymond Cormier was sitting in jail awaiting his trial. It was after this arrest that it seemed like the public really woke up and started demanding change. They rallied for a change in how CFS handled missing youth. A report was done on some of the reasons why Tina slipped through the cracks, and some recommendations were made on how they could be better and do better and improve how CFS handles things with these youth that were struggling. The first recommendation was a better program to monitor absences in the grades K-12. through When Tina was a student, she missed a lot of school after the death of her father. And had those been closely monitored and reported, CFS could have potentially stepped in better to get help for her and the support that she needed. From the sounds of it, absences were just brushed off. And even though they knew these kids were intentionally skipping school, they did nothing about it. They also requested that the Manitoba Education Board limit out-of-school suspensions. The goal with limiting these was to keep kids in school, and I actually really like that suggestion. Some of these kids don't have good guidance at home, or parents that can stay home when they've been suspended to oversee what they're doing, which these kids are then being left unattended, which ultimately could lead to more trouble. The report also suggested a look at how mental health and addiction is handled by CFS in Manitoba. It was very clear that after the death of her father, Tina was struggling mentally. 
This was when she started abusing drugs and alcohol, and had her mental health been taken more seriously, she could have received treatment and the assistance that she needed early on. Being that Tina was in the care of the government, when she lost her father, some services should have been immediately offered to her. Instead, she and her family were repeatedly turned away when they requested it. The report requested a review of how to handle and help sexually exploited children in order to better improve treatment facilities. They also asked to have new protocol put into place for missing youth and sexually exploited youth. And this is a huge thing that they needed. To find these children and then to just take them to a hotel and drop them off or whatever they were doing was not working. I was absolutely horrified to hear about how nothing was done for Tina every single time she was found. They allowed the cycle to just continue. I think that these recommendations that were made are a great starting point. I think Tina's case really opened the eyes of how these cases are inappropriately handled, and I hate to say that anything good could come out of a murder, but I do think that Tina's death really sparked a conversation that was past due. And so for that, I do not think Tina's death was in vain. From what I have seen, a lot of things began to change within the Winnipeg community for the better. In January of 2018, Raymond's trial finally came, and things did not go how everyone had hoped. He was found not guilty of her murder, and that was due to there being literally no physical evidence to tie him to her murder. They had no legitimate confession from him. They had nothing, and so he was found not guilty. There was a lot of people within the community who felt like this was the right verdict. A lot of people felt like Raymond wasn't guilty and that they had tried an innocent man. Then, of course, there was the uproar of people who did feel like he was guilty. I have to say that I'm torn and I don't know one way or the other. I wish that there was more evidence to prove whether he was involved, but I can also see how it's a possibility that he wasn't. But again, her death wasn't in vain. This really opened the eyes of the community to a lot of problems and flaws within the system, especially for those indigenous youth. There have been many marches done in Tina's honor, not only to remember him, but to also make sure that people remember the flaws in the system and to continue to push for change. Just this past Thursday, people walked from the Forks to Alexander Docks where they lit candles to honor Tina. During this walk, they also called out and chanted for support for other missing and murdered Indigenous women. They also were bringing attention to two homicide victims, Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron. It's been nine years since Tina was murdered, and her family and the community just want answers. Tina was just a 15-year-old girl who was so vibrant and so full of life. She had hopes and dreams and ambitions like all of us, yet she repeatedly fell through the cracks. This should never have happened to Tina, and there were so many opportunities for people to help her, yet they never did. And that is a major tragedy. 
Crimeaholics, that is all that I have for this week's episode. Make sure that you're a part of our Facebook group. If you're not already, you can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. If you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me over on TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you wish to follow me personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholic. As always, crimeaholics, be aware and take care. 